You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. Let's do it later. Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Because nope. I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. Welcome back to the Lynx Golf Podcast. This is digital editor Al Lunsford with Lynx. I am happy to be joined today by a, a very interesting person with a very diverse background. Among things, he has a PhD in engineering from Lehigh. He is a former commissioner of both sanitation and traffic in New York City. He's a longtime consultant with the USGA, among other things. He is also an expert on what causes slow play, which is the, the main topic of our discussion today. Uh, but his name is... Dr. Lou Riccio. Lou, it's great to have you on the Lynx Golf Podcast, and thank you for joining me today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Can you give us a little bit more? I, I, I set a little bit of an intro about who you are, but um, your, your background in the game of golf is certainly unique and, <laughs> and diverse. Can you tell me a little bit about um, your history working in the game? Well, I've been involved in the game for a long time. I started playing 50 years ago uh, when my father got me a set of uh, cut down clubs, I guess. Uh, I've never been a competitive golfer, but I've been an addictive golfer um, for most of my life. Uh, back in the 1970s, I was working in Washington, D.C. at a place called the Police Foundation, which was a Ford Foundation uh, Research Institute looking into um, police practices. Uh, and with a friend of mine, Cappy Gagnon, who worked there as well, we formed the uh, Police Foundation Golf League, which was a group of us hackers who would play uh, matches every Wednesday afternoon, uh, nine hole matches and Wednesday evenings. And Cappy, who by the way, ended up being president of the Society for American Baseball Research years later, uh, Cappy encouraged me, since I was an engineer, to run the handicapping for our little league, uh, our group of about 10 golfers. Uh, and um, I did the handicaps for our league. We played on a public course on Wednesday evenings. And then I played with other friends on the weekends at championship courses. And I realized by doing the handicapping using the USGA system at the time, I had a different handicap depending on which course I played. So I, what does a researcher do? You know, you, you write research proposals on how, how the, what you see and what can be done to correct it. I sent it to the USGA, dear sirs, you know, and I expected never to hear back from them. Maybe I'd have some influence. And I got a four page handwritten letter back from the president of the Minnesota National Bank, Joe Ewan, who was on the executive board of the USGA telling me how much he enjoyed reading my research papers and that I should keep the USGA continuously informed of my progress. He said there were a couple of people in California who had similar ideas, so I wasn't the first one. But interestingly enough, Frank Thomas, who was the technical director of the USGA, wrote in one of his books that it was my paper that encouraged the USA because the USGA to look at handicapping this back in the late 70s 
uh, because I was from the East Coast and those guys, the other guys were from the West Coast and we all know how crazy those people are. <laughs> so, uh, so, but when a guy from the East Coast confirmed what the guys on the West Coast were doing, uh, the USGA formed the Handicap Research Team in 1979. I was one of the original members and we developed the slope system, what is now called the slope system of handicapping, which was a way of adjusting for the fact that your handicap used to be dependent on which course you played on. And the slope system was a tremendous leap forward. It's not perfect. Uh, and there's always room for improvement, but uh, it's uh, worldwide now. Uh, it's a good system. So that was so right away, I became interested uh, in, the, in the administration of golf. In the meantime, in the 1970s, I developed the first piece of computer software on a mainframe, believe it or not, of analyzing the statistics of an individual golfer. And that individual was me because my handicap was 12 to 14. And my friend said, I should be a much better player. And so I did, what does a researcher do? I wrote a computer program to keep track of my statistics, not just the standard fairways and greens, but I invented a, a, a version of what is now called uh, strokes gain putting. I called it pro putts by taking what the pros uh, do from different distances and comparing. Essentially it was strokes gain putting and lots of other ancillary statistics. And I looked at my own game and I changed my swing a little bit and I got down to single digits. And then by in the 1980s, I took that software and I sold it, the golf analyzer. Some of your older listeners might've purchased this software back in the 1980s. It was good for when the PCs and the Apple home computers came on board, but there wasn't really that big of a market for it at the time. But it, it uh, uh, was interesting enough that a fellow by the name of George Pepper, who you know very well, Al, uh, was yeah. I think one of the most fascinating people in the game of golf, was the editor of Golf Magazine at that time, hired me to follow Jack Nicklaus and others at the US Open in 1980 at Role. And uh, my friends and I collected the statistics the golf analyzed the statistics on a number of players. And sure enough, Jack won. And I wrote an article for Golf Magazine. And so my media career was launched at that point. And so uh, I had a couple of different dimensions to my enjoyment of the game of golf. But, you know, like almost every golfer, we all love this game. We had a good shot and we're so happy. We have a good round. We're so happy. But universally, I found that the one thing that drives golfers crazy is pace of play. Uh, and this has been true from the beginning of the game, I suspect, uh, that pace of play is an issue. And pace can be described in a number of different ways. One way is how long it takes to play the whole round of golf. And as our lives get more and more complicated, the time to take to play around the golf becomes more and more of a problem. So even if it's the same amount of time it took 50 years ago, it's just time is more valuable these days. The other dimension to it, which I find the, the most significant is waiting for the group ahead of you. That that is the most frustrating aspect of uh, pace of play. And so um, back in the 1980s, I even did an article for Golf Digest on what is your pace of play handicap, which was a little quiz, a humorous quiz to see how much you knew about how you should behave. And then in 
um, when I was transportation commissioner, Jay Matola, who was the executive director of the MGA, uh, asked me to do an article for the Met Golfer on traffic versus pace of play. And when you start to think about it, the golf course is no different than a one lane highway. And if the car in front of you is going, you can't go faster than the car in front of you. And it doesn't matter what's happening in front of that car. Uh, if that car in front of you has an accident, like a lost ball, uh, you got to slow down. And, and so I made that analogy and, and that stuck with me, but it wasn't until the, till I was playing around at uh, one of my favorite courses, Beth Page Black. And I was stuck on the 12th tee with three groups waiting. And we had already played over three hours to get to the 12th tee. And I just walked off the course and said, I got to do something about this. And so I started doing some mathematical models, some simulation models. And I don't think I was necessarily the first one to do this. Uh, Andrew Tiger at Union College did some interesting things. But I did some simulations and came to the conclusion that there was more to this pace of play issue than just yelling at the group ahead of you. Uh, and so the, the models led to an article in the Met Golfer on uh, the truth behind pace of play. And then I wrote a book called Golf's Pace of Play Bible. Uh, and the USGA picked up, on it, uh, picked up on it and had a couple of major conferences and they did some advertisements on the pace of play issue. Uh, Golf Channel uh, did some things on it. And uh, I think we were making some progress on the issue. And then I got a call from uh, a fellow in Boston. And he said, I'm coming to New York. I'd like, to, I read your book. I'd like to have breakfast with you. Can I take you to breakfast? And I said, sure, you wanna buy me breakfast? Sounds good to me. And it turns out he was uh, an interesting tech entrepreneur, Dave Van Slet, who had, you know, made a, I guess, a, a couple fortunes uh, by, by my standards anyway, in, in the tech world. And, and he was a nut job golfer like me. And he said, you know, we had a wonderful breakfast together. He said, I liked your book. I want to build a business around it. I said, well, I have my 345 golf association stuff uh and i think um some of your viewers may know if they go to three t-h-r-e-e four five golf.org they can see all my research on uh on pace of play but he said no i want to make a business i want to make a real big difference in the world and i want to take your ideas and build a business around it which is by the way every professor's dream <laughs> that they have an idea that somebody wants to build a business around. And so uh, Dave created, and I've been the chief analytics officer for it, uh, called Fairway IQ. And we have over hundred courses and we're the official, I'm not sure if that's the right term, but we, one of our clients is the PGA Tour. We provide them with our technology to monitor everything that goes on in the golf course the players pace, but also where the officials are, where the medical people are. And so we, when we approach a, um, a golf club, we tell them that we can help them with their pace of play issues, but we also can help them with their maintenance staff, where their carts are, where their equipment is, and a, a wide variety of things. So mm -hmm. at, at this point, I have my 345golf.org group, but the main 
effort now is Fairway IQ. You can look it up, fairwayiq.org, to try and help golf courses manage their pace of play and manage all the equipment of that um, that they use to maintain the golf course. So let's let's get rolling. Everyone has encountered and at some point, I mean, inevitably in playing golf over the years, getting stuck behind a group and, and being <laughs> playing slow. You've been the victim, you've been the culprit, perhaps. Um, but pace of play is an issue that is persistent and, and hasn't really gone away. It may have, we may have seen some improvements um, as you'll likely mention, but um, it continues to be kind of an issue um, for a lot of clubs across the world. And I'll preface this by saying, again, Lou's website is 345golf.org if you want to go and do your own research or kind of follow along with this conversation um, that we'll have here about the factors of pace of play. That's where you can do that. So Lou, and I'm looking at a, a kind of flow chart of the basics of, of pace of play and the certain things that, uh, factors that contribute to slow play. Can you break that down and, and simplify that? What, what are the main causes of slow pace of play? Sure. As, it, as I say on my uh, 345, that's T-H-R-E-E-4-5-golf.org. There are really three main categories of, uh, that affect pace of play. Everyone, everyone believes that the main factors are individual personal behaviors. And you can't ignore them. You know, moving to your own ball, moving at a brisk pace, being ready to hit when it's your turn, don't line up one foot putts, you know, all of those kinds of things. They're not telling jokes while they should be moving forward. Unquestionably, those are important factors, but they're not the only factor. And in many cases, not even the most critical factors. Another set of factors, and the reason I say uh, that's people tend to focus on those behavioral factors without recognizing that there are other factors. Now, there's another group of factors that are course-related. And if you're playing a championship course, Wingfoot or uh, Baltas Roll or, uh, you know, one of these great, great courses, and you're playing Bethpage Black for them, and you're playing from the back tees, <laughs> it's, it's going to be a long day. You know, so the course itself, and how the course is set up, whether the fairways are wide, whether the rough is deep, whether the greens. And by the way, for every inch of green speed over 10 on the stint meter, I estimate it adds 10 minutes to the round of golf. And we'll talk some more, if you like, about green speeds, but because um, I think they're a serious problem. But there are course-related factors. And you could put the fastest players in the world, as the USGA does every June with the US Open, uh, one of these great courses and it takes them five hours to get around, you know, and it's cause it's hard. It's very hard. Mm -hmm. It also depends on where you place the, the, the hole, the flag stick. Uh, and one, one part of the green, uh, the course could be fast. Another part of the green, the course could be slow. Um, so there are the second set. That's the second set of factors, the course related factors. And then it turns out and my research seems to indicate that in many situations, the third set of factors is really the most important. 
It's the management factors. And the most critical management factor uh, is the T intervals, the T intervals. It could be the how the Rangers uh, operate. It could be whether you have a wave up policy on par threes, but the T intervals are probably the biggest cause of slow play of any other factor. Now, let me, I don't know if I said it earlier, but there's really several different aspects of the pace of play issue. One is how long it takes to play the round of golf. And I think I mentioned this earlier, that that's a frustrating um, factor right there. But waiting for the group ahead of you is very often the thing that frustrates golfers the most. Uh, so you can have two groups of players who play in four hours and 20 minutes. The first group who just moved right along at whatever pace they wanted to thought it was a wonderful day. The group behind them waited on every shot and even and they, they were frustrated and angry with the round. So they both played in the same amount of time, but one group was happy and one group wasn't happy. So the, the time to play is in and of itself a little bit more intricate than just how long does it take to play. But the waiting time is absolutely critical. And the third dimension to this, and the daily fee courses and the public courses have to take this into account, is how many people they can get on the golf course. For the daily fee courses, it's the revenue. For the public courses, it's how many people they can satisfy and get on the courses. Well, it turns out my calculations indicate that it's an unfortunate reality that the shorter the T interval, the more people you can get on the golf course. So a public golf course will very often have eight minute T intervals. And when you put it groups off, foursomes off at eight minute intervals, you have guaranteed a four and a half or five hour round and there's nothing you can do about it. Mm -hmm. It's like I said about a one lane highway. If the car in front of you is going 20 miles an hour, you can be in a Ferrari and you're going to go 20 miles an hour. And that's all there is to it. And so the more golfers you put on the golf course, the slower the overall pace will be. So the first thing a golf course has to do is estimate what is the most reasonable T interval. And at a minimum, I've calculated 10-minute T intervals. Most courses should have 12-minute T intervals. And uh, in our fairway IQ analysis, we do a thorough analysis of the golf course and of the players, and we estimate what should be the proper T interval to minimize the amount of wait time you have on the golf course. But it's an unfortunate reality for, for daily fee and public golf courses is they'll stuff as many people as they can on the golf course and, and you're stuck. You're stuck out there. And no matter how much you yell at the group ahead of them, a group ahead of you, they're yelling at the group ahead of them. And that's all there is to it. Now, let me just say a couple things. But I did a study uh, a few years ago of 170 golf courses. And I had uh, time to play data for 170 golf courses over a summertime period. Uh, and I found uh, several different things, one of which was the average round of golf in America is about four hours and 17 minutes. And if I looked it up historically, and I, this was the first real study using real data, uh, measured data of pace of play in America. There have been several studies by the PGA of America and the National Golf Foundation and other people which used um, survey data, asked people how long it took them to play. Not bad studies, 
but they were depending on people's estimates of how long it took them to play. Turns out that the average time was about four hours and 20 minutes, four hours and 15 minutes in those studies 30 years ago. So the overall time to play probably hasn't changed all that much, although people's perception of it has changed because time is more valuable to people these days. Secondly, the average first round of the day for all of the courses, all 170 courses, was three hours and 45 minutes. That means unimpeded. Now, granted, usually the group that goes off first is a group that's interested in pace. Mm -hmm. So they're usually quicker, but there's nobody ahead of them. So they're unimpeded and the average is three hours and 45 minutes. Now, what does that mean? That means that on average, the average American foursome waits about an hour and two minutes, an hour, a half, 32 minutes, I'm sorry. Uh, my calculation was wrong there. Four hours and 17 minutes versus three hours and 45 minutes. That's 32 minutes of waiting on average for the group ahead of you to clear before you can hit. You can take a step back even further and think of it this way. You play 18 holes, you walk, let's say you walk at three miles an hour. That's a pretty good pace. And that's where the three, that's where one of the three of the 345 comes from. Uh, everyone should walk at at least three miles an hour, which is about just under 100 yards a minute. So you're going to walk about four miles. That's about 80 minutes of walking. Four miles, okay? Mm -hmm. Now let's say you take 45 seconds, which is where the 45 comes from, the limit of how long it should take to prepare and then strike the ball per shot, 45 seconds, let's just say. And if you take 100 shots, the average person in America takes between 95 and 100 shots. Uh, that's another uh, 75 minutes. So we're up to 155 minutes or two hours and 35 minutes. So if you go out and play by yourself, and granted, H.W. Bush uh, played a lot faster than that. It was Harry Light, uh, Lighthorse uh, Cooper got the name because he played the L.A. Open in two hours and 45 minutes. It's about two hours and 35 minutes would be a decent amount of time if you went out and played alone. Mm -hmm. So the difference between 235 and 345, the, the time it takes an unimpeded foursome interested in pace to play 18 holes, is what, about an hour and 10 minutes. That's the time you wait for other members of your group to hit. So you, you go from... 235 by yourself to 345 in a foursome to four hours and 17 minutes overall with other groups in the way. Ideally, what we would like to do at Fairway IQ is to set T intervals so that everyone plays at the pace they want to play at. Uh, we assume that everyone should play at the same pace. That's not true. That's not true. People who play in the morning tend to play quicker than people who play in the afternoon. And so people choose their time interval. We help golf clubs understand their members and their golf course so that you would never put a four hour and 10 minute group right in front of a three hour and 50 minute group. Mm -hmm. you would, or you would pace them out maybe 15 or 20 minutes apart so that it would take 18 holes for the second group to catch up to the first group. Overall though, 
we also give them information about their golf course. And there are certain elements of a golf course that uh, affect pace. And I, I recommend waving up. I know most private clubs don't like that, but public golf courses should almost always wave up on par threes because par threes are where the backup usually happens. It's, uh, it's an interesting thing that it's not the par fives. The par fives process people much better than par threes. And that's why it's typical that you find groups waiting. But if you wave up on a par three, instantly uh, group uh, the waiting pretty much disappears. So these three factors, getting back to your original question, the three factors, individual behaviors, very important, but not as important as everybody thinks. There's course factors, very important, because if you play a very tight, difficult course, you're going to lose balls, you're going to waste time looking. And by the way, there's absolutely nothing good about losing a golf ball. There's no reason why we don't have chips in golf balls, because there's no added value to anybody, even your opponents. It's, there's no added value to losing a golf ball. Uh, so you have golf course factors, and the third set of factors are the management, which is really, I think, where the, the main problem is. And other people who have studied this, including uh, people at the USGA, they've come to the conclusion that uh, T intervals are very often the big factor as well. And so we work with golf courses at Fairway IQ to try and get all of these different things to work together. You know, um, uh, how did... Uh, Kenny Basque, uh, who was a USGA mid-amateur champion, built with Ben Crenshaw the um, Friar's Head on, on Long Island. Yeah. And they have a terrific program. They In the morning, they put twosomes off first, then threesomes, and then foursomes. And they put the foursomes who they know are going to play quicker than other foursomes. The other foursomes will tee off in the afternoons. It's just smart team interval management. And what we try to bring to every course is that kind of smart T interval management to help people uh, enjoy the game. The whole purpose is to enjoy the game. And if you want to play fast, you should have that opportunity. And if you want to play slowly, you should have that opportunity. I was asked on the golf channel, you know, if you go to Pebble Beach, you don't want to hurry up. You want to enjoy the day. Well, that's true. But what about the group behind you? You know, what if they want to play fast? It's you, you don't have a passing lane in this highway, uh, at least not uh, not a good one anyway. I'll go back to your point when you said no one benefits from losing a golf ball. I think the golf ball companies would argue that <laughs> they certainly benefit from that and they don't want any chips anytime soon. Why would they? <laughs> Although I, I find more than I lose. So uh that they have a, there's I'm not helping their their business and balances yeah <laughs> is there a concrete example like a specific club that you've worked with that say hey they recognize that they had a pace of play problem when you go in I know other the interval system uh, changing the intervals for the tee times is is practical on hand Dude, what do you say to a club um, suggestions for other ways to encourage members to pick up their pace? What are some so, oh, oh, so that's a good good uh, question. Uh, first off, um, most of our clients are private clubs and would rather remain private. But we found that the average time for our 
uh, member clubs is less than four hours. It's around 350 on the average time that they've improved as a result of working with us. I, I know, of course, Beth Page Black, by the way, uh, and Glenn Cove, Glenn Cove on Long Island uh, went from eight minute T intervals to 10. I think Beck Blage Black might be at 12 now. And they've seen tremendous improvements in uh, not only the time to play, but in golfers' enjoyment. Uh, so uh, I wish I had more concrete examples that I can tell you about. But uh, I know Brooklawn in Connecticut. Uh, started posting the average time of the players. So everybody knew who, you know, I mean, so like your handicap would be, you'd yeah, have a pace yeah. of play handicap. And so you would, you would likely match up with players who play at the same pace as you do. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with playing slowly if the course is open, you know, uh, and especially juniors and seniors, Although seniors will will zoom around the course uh, sometimes, but uh, if they want to play more slowly, just the club has to recognize that and make that time available for them. Uh, there's also certain etiquettes of letting groups through that uh, it helps for the enjoyment. But um, but under the more we understand, the better service we can provide. The more we understand, like any business. The, the more that we understand about our customers, as I teach in a business school, all the more you understand with our customers, how, what, the better we can, we can be. We can see, not only, you know, you can sit in the clubhouse with our system and you can see what's going on in the whole course in real time. And we have a, a red, uh, yellow, and green coding system. Green means you're moving at the right pace. Yellow means you're moving slowly, but not because of you, but because of people ahead of you. And red means you're slowing other people down. And you can get that message out to the groups. We get we have a way of getting the message out to the group. We have, a, uh, or out to rangers uh, who can then make adjustments in real time. And, and so people have more enjoyment. We can anticipate places. Um, there are courses where you have a uh, par five and then you have a short par four and more people pile up on that short par four as they come off the par five. Well, you can anticipate that and try and adjust the, the T uh, placement, you know, the T the markers so that the par four plays a little quicker uh, to match uh, you know, the same way that a factory tries to balance the different operations of how you make a product go through a factory, uh, we, you know, a golf course is a factory and it produces foursomes. And there's 18 operations to produce a successful foursome. And uh, sometimes one item going through the factory slows down another item. Well, if the sooner you know about that, the more information you have about that, the better you can be at providing real service uh, to your clientele and help them enjoy the game more. And that's the bottom line, is uh, helping more people to enjoy the game. I think that was an important point that you, 
you brought up right at the beginning of your answer there in the fact that there is a lot of emphasis on playing fast and, and go, 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 but, but some people just don't, that's not how they enjoy the game of golf, right? So one person may be perceived as a slower player, but they're not interested in, in playing faster. They're interested in enjoying their time on the golf course, how they want to enjoy their time on the golf course. So like you said, being able to, to understand the, the value that comes with the game to different members um, at a specific club is a great way to, to kind of curb this potential issue somewhere. You know, um, you know if, if I may, how do we learn the rules of golf? Well, we go out and play and people tell us. You know, no, you can't do that. Or this is what you have to do and that kind of thing. But not that many people read the rules of golf. It's uh, uh, it's not the most enjoyable thing to read. But, uh, you know, you should learn the rules. But you learn it by learning by playing. Well, the same way is true about the pace of play behaviors. And in my book, the, the Golf's Pace of Play Bible, I say, you know, we shouldn't be so... Uh, fast to judge other people. We should lead. We should demonstrate what good pace of play behavior is and help other people to learn it as opposed to being angry <laughs> with them. If you're just angry with them, you know, uh, I always have a saying is um, uh, you, you never tell a stupid person they're stupid because now you're dealing with an angry, stupid person. Uh, if you tell a slow player that they're slow, they just get angry. What you want to do is say, let's do the right thing. Let's pick up the pace. Move to your own ball. Don't, don't stand here. Go to your own ball and get ready to hit. And, and you notice everybody else is doing that. We should all be leaders to try and make sure everybody understands what is pace of play etiquette and what are good pace of play behaviors. You know, I mentioned earlier about the uh, green speeds. The putting surface is the one place you can completely control your pace. No other group can slow down your putting. It's your group. How long it takes them to clear the green is all up to your group. You can, the group ahead of you can affect you if you're in the fairway or if you're on the tee. But the one place that you have complete control is on the putting complex, the putting surface. If we could speed up the clearing of the green, it all backs up from the green. If we could clear up the, the time it takes to clear the green, many of the pace of play problems would disappear uh, because that's where it, it backs up from the, from the green, okay? Yeah. Lou, uh... I appreciate you taking the time. Again, his company is, is called Fairway IQ. His, his website is the word three and the numbers four, five, golf.org. I know you've had a lot of irons in the fire, no pun intended there. <laughs> Definitely pun intended there. But what, what's next for you? What are you working on right now other than continuing to grow um, your company? Well, um, that's a, the main effort now. Um, I am interested in continuing our terrific work with the USGA on golf handicapping. Uh, would love to see us take the next 
well, we've just done the world handicapping system so that you can play anywhere in the world and, and have a fair match because the handicaps are all on the same basis. Uh, but we need to understand a little bit more about handicapping. And overall, uh, gee, you know, I played one round of golf this year. My next thing is to play a lot of golf this year. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm frustrated uh, in that uh, I haven't been able to play. I've been doing too much talking about golf and not enough playing. But uh, I do hope that our Fairway IQ uh, business helps clubs make the game more enjoyable uh, for everybody concerned. Yeah. Where do you play? I'll play any play anywhere that anybody will invite me to. I'm America's guest when it comes to rounds of golf. I'm a public links player. I was a member of the Nassau Players Club, a, a terrific group of people, uh, men and women, might be women at this point, I'm not sure, but um, uh, who play the Bethpage Black Course, the average handicap 5.5. Uh, they put more uh, players into the med amateurs than most of the private clubs. Uh, I was a nine handicap when I played there. I was the last guy picked in the scramble. Nobody wanted me on their team. Uh, so I used to play there uh, a lot. Marine Park in Brooklyn, believe it or not. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and so when you ask me, what do I have next? I, I'm, I'm embarrassed to say I didn't mention it. Marine Park in Brooklyn is a Robert Trent Jones golf course. And it's a link style golf course and it is beautiful. And uh, I've worked with the group that manages it to bring it up to almost country club condition. And for the last couple summers, we've run the largest PGA junior golf league at Marine Park with kids from Brooklyn, believe it or not. Uh, as our motto is the next Tiger Woods might be uh, a youngster in Brooklyn right now. And we're trying to uh, develop an interest in the game of golf, not only because it's good for golf, but it's also good for the young people to be exposed to the values of golf. And we're trying to bring a, a Symmetra Tour event to New York City, now, not near New York City, in New York City, in Brooklyn. You know, we have, we have the, the Brooklyn Nets and the Brooklyn Cyclones uh, minor league baseball team well, uh, the Symmetra Tour is interested. We're looking for sponsors to help us run a Symmetra Tour event and then maybe an LPGA event here in Brooklyn and make the proceeds uh, support our youth, inner city youth programs through the Brooklyn Golf Alliance, which uh, I started with another friend. So we're trying to um, uh, grow the game of golf in Brooklyn uh, at Marine Park, and you can look up Marine Park. It's a Robert Trent Jones golf course, and it's a beautiful thing. So if you come to New York City, I'll definitely play around the golf with you at uh, at Marine Park. Sounds great. Yeah, uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Continues best wishes with all that. I hope you get that semester event. Dr. Lou Riccio, thank you for joining me today, and I look forward to continue, continuing to keep up with you and, and hope that Pace of play improves everywhere. Thanks to you. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I love Lynx Magazine. It's always a, a, a beautiful, it's a beautiful book. And, uh, and thank you. For this, your podcasts are always, always a lot of fun to hear. I appreciate that very much. You take care. I uh, look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, great. All right.